90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I'm really sad. You're sad? School's about to start. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> now the that interns I have ki- are gone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now that I have kids, it's both sad and happy, though, right? Because you look forward to sticking your kids back in school. But right <laughs> now I have to start school, too. So So it's sad, but, you know, I'm trying to get it together. Well, I know folks that are having a back-to-school party, which for the kids is sort of a last hurrah of summer, and for the parents is definitely celebration. Exactly. (laughs) I know how it feels. (laughs) Uh, So what are you up to since you're not getting ready for back-to-school? Well, I am staying pretty busy with, you know, we we do this every week, which keeps me busy. And I'm also now on the hook for another weekly product that I've started. because I am a glutton for punishment, and <laughs> we now have about a half a dozen Met Pie Mondays out. Okay, and what does that mean? So <laughs> every week on Monday, I post either a short blog post or a short YouTube video of how to do something cool with Python that's related to meteorology. Nice. Uh, you're going to have a lot of weather weenies following that one. Yeah, the goal is sort of your Monday morning coffee break. You know, you get to work, you make your coffee, and you need about 10 minutes to spin up. Uh, the The promise is none of the videos will be longer than 10 minutes, and it shouldn't take you more than 10 minutes to read any given article. Nice. I like this. This is good. What's your feedback on these so far? Uh, so far, they've been great. In fact, it was very good timing. Um, because we had some user support requests come in. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, on Monday, we're releasing a video that shows you exactly how to do that. <laughs> and that, that worked out really well. Oh, and I'm sure you'll use those to fuel your future MetPie Mondays, much like we fuel our show with our listener suggestions. Oh, that was a good transition. So, <laughs> um, nice dissolve. <laughs> yeah, so... I suppose we should start this one with an apology. Uh, <laughs> yes, this is a big Mia culpa. <laughs> so this was a listener-suggested show, and we have a lot of listener-suggested shows, listener-suggested fun papers, and sometimes it's a while before we get around to reevaluating them, especially in the case of when it's one that is going to require some pretty significant digging into the literature, as this one did. That's a nice way of saying, especially when it's a show that we have no idea what it's about. Right. (laughs) And this ended up coming in, uh, when this show airs, it will have been a few days over a year ago, (laughs) from Listener Mike. And he said that he's curious about these features in South Carolina called the Carolina Bays, and had a few details about them said that there's some debate about how they were formed and thought that it would be a good fit for one of our shows. And I have to say, Mike, I dug into the literature on this and I agree. I had never heard of these and this is really weird stuff. Um, And it's a little bit misnomer too, because it's not just in Carolina. These features run all up and down the Atlantic seaboard and they're very enigmatic. 
They are, and so they're they're called different things in different places. Of course, if you search Carolina Bay, you're going to primarily get Carolinas, uh, but Maryland basins or Grady ponds or Citronelle ponds, they have a bunch of names, uh, but they're these really weird geomorphic features that there's a lot of debate about what causes them. And also, as I found out in researching them, you can get hooked up with a lot of pretty crazy pseudoscience websites as well. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's what I found as well. Um, these things sort of go into the the category of, you know, the radar sun, sunrise and sunset spikes and all that stuff that could be formed by aliens. Exactly. So uh, <laughs> what are the Carolina Bays? The, the simple answer is that they are little marshy pond type things that are a quarter of a mile to two miles in diameter. So that's half a kilometer to a kilometer and a half for our metric friends. <laughs> right. Um, and we'll say the bays part of this doesn't mean bay like an embayment. It's named after the trees, the bay trees that grow there. So don't think of these things necessarily as attached to the ocean like you would the term bay. Exactly. And so, I mean, that's that's the story, right? Right. Uh-huh. They're, there you go. They're these, they're <laughs> these uh, circular-ish features, and there are interesting ecological habitats in them. Mm-hmm. So yep. we can go ahead and move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show. Yay! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now we're skipping over that because these are really weird. And as you can guess from our cryptic banter, <laughs> that the origin of these things isn't necessarily well uh well known or well agreed upon um the lidar image of these when i was looking them up and this is on the wikipedia page it these look like you would see pictures of impact craters on another planet except for impact craters that have been squished maybe since they're kind of all elliptical and they're all sort of in the same orientation and so if i saw that lidar picture of these carolina bays that's what i would have guessed it was something from mercury or mars yeah, if somebody had given me this LiDAR picture with no context, I would say, you misprocessed something. <laughs> uh, they do look a little smeared. <laughs> yeah, and you know, have you ever seen those clay deformation experiments that structural geologists do? Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> so they, they take blocks of clay and scribe circles on them and then shear them or squish them. And then how the circles change shape tells them what they would expect to see in the field. Uh that's what this looks like. That they is look exactly, like squished circles. That is exactly what it looks like. Uh, I didn't even put that together until you said it, but that's exactly right. They're so uniform, um, and that's a very good analogy, too, because all these squished circles, they're not randomly placed. They're all Their long axes are all aligned, mostly in this northwest-southeasterly orientation. Yeah, and so if you go look on Google Earth... Uh, or Google these and, you know, Carolina Bays, Google Earth, whatever, you'll find some pretty interesting images. you also find images that have been annotated by people showing all kinds of silly things. Well, but, yeah, like where, where the aliens landed who started to build yeah. these features, yes. Right. Um, <laughs> but it gets even weirder than that. So let's start on the southern end. Okay. So in Florida, these are roughly circular features. All right. And as you go northward, they get elongated, and their rotation 
rotates as you go to higher latitudes. So in Georgia, there's something like 16 degrees west of north. And in Virginia, there's 64 degrees west of north. But in any given area, they're all within 10 or 15 degrees of each other. That's so weird. And <laughs> it can get even stranger. Great. At the far northern end, there is suddenly a stepwise change where the long axis goes from something like north 64 west to suddenly north 48 east. And then it becomes bimodal and then it becomes random before they die out. Oh my goodness. Where are the random ones? How far north are we talking? Uh, I think we're talking north of the border here. Okay. All right. So we'll just ignore those. Um. And (laughs) these, it's what process could have caused something that's so systematic, that's Mm -hmm. so consistent in a given area, and then varies with latitude, Mm -hmm. which that varies with latitude when I was reading about these gave me an idea that turns out gave lots of people the same idea (laughs) that we'll get to in a little bit because lots of things vary with latitude, including the weather. Yes, there you go. Um, I will say, shockingly, that my first inclinations, geologic inclinations, were that these were weirdly tectonic and had to do with some kind of like accreted terrain things, but they're much younger than that, I'm guessing, so... Yeah, well, there have been orogenies on the eastern seaboard, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So that's kind of where where my mind went. But um, anyway, so saying that, we want to first decide how old are these things. Because right. that matters paleoclimatically, like you just alluded to, or tectonically as well. So what did we look at to figure out how old they are? And one of the first things, which I love so much because it seems like the most boring thing to do on Earth, is we looked at palynology, which is the study of basically fossil pollen. Which, it blows my mind that we can do this. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, it's, and when I say boring, I mean boring because think about the size of pollen, right? It's very tiny, and you're going to take it, and you're going to look for pollen that's thousands to hundreds of thousands to millions of years old that can be done i mean science right (laughs) right so the first thing you've got to do is go out and get a core from the bottom of one of these features which doing field work with heavy coring equipment in a marshy environment is always fun oh yeah always fun i've got some scars from that both so. emotional, emotional scars and physical scars, actually. <laughs> right. And so they, they take these cores, and they found pollen, and they said, well, the first thing that somebody's going to say is these are disturbed. These have had some kind of geologic process happen to them. So they did radiocarbon dating and found out that, indeed, as you would expect, the, core, the sediments in the cores get older as you go down the core. So they were deposited and have remained undisturbed ever since. Proving Walther's Law. Great. Right. (laughs) And so how old were these pollen grains they found? So they found pollen grains, which they know are in these undisturbed sediments, dating back 75,000 to 123,000 years ago, which is pretty impressive. (laughs) Right. 
So since you've got pollen grains that are in the sediments that have filled up these holes, you know that now you've got sort of an age range on these holes. They have to have been around before the pollen got there, right? And the pollen's been there since potentially 123,000 years. So that's sort of as young as these holes can be. Right. And this is a common case in geology where we can't get the absolute age of something easily. We depend on being able to get ages of other things and determine relationships and say, well, it has to be older than this feature, but it has to be younger than this feature. And by these other methods, I can date those features. So it has to be in this time range. And you keep slicing away at the time range with various tools until you figure out how old this thing is. That's exactly right. Paleomagnetism is one of those tools. And I mean, it's so common that this is how we date things that we even have what we call, you know, the law of superposition, right? So we figure out what came first and what cross cuts what, and therefore you can get this thing that we call relative age. Exactly. And right. so one of the things that you can look for is what's called a cross cutting relationship. So if there is a feature that disturbs or cuts, cuts across, say, a, uh, a formation, so you get a layer deposited and then it has a faulting event or a dike injection event, you know that it had to be there before that event, obviously. Right. You would think that uh, this would be fairly, fairly easy to understand, but intro geology students prove this wrong on every first lab exam. <laughs> well, when you have multiple things. So there was deposition, then there was faulting, then there was more deposition, then there was a dike injection, and then there was tectonic squeezing that folded. It can get complicated. Hey, don't you make excuses. <laughs> so, <laughs> and you need geophysics to map those. Uh, oh, <laughs> so not we, true. Uh, <laughs> we can do a another constraint on these by looking at sand dunes, because there are some sand dunes that have migrated into some of these bays. And for the dunes to have migrated into the bays, we know the bays must be older than the dunes, which we can date the dunes through multiple methods to a pretty tight date range of 29 to 33,000 years ago. Right. And if you're not impressed, the fact that we can date sand dune ages, that's pretty impressive stuff. Right, and we can also map them, which is going to become an important component later in the story. We can make maps of what dune fields looked like 30,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. So we've got some ages. Um, I think the age, when we talk about dating things, a lot of people immediately think of radiocarbon dating, which actually is not very useful in geology. Um, a lot of people think that's what we do and that's it. But uh, carbon has a pretty young, uh, pretty small half-life. So radiocarbon doesn't really tell us a lot in a lot of geologic things we're looking at because our time ranges are just too large. Yeah, well, we, what we generally end up getting is a, well, it's got to be greater than this because that's how long it took all the radiocarbon to... <laughs> right, uh, exactly. So with radiocarbon, we know there's something like 38 to 49,000 years before present. Okay, which we already knew from, you know, these dunes and from the palynology studies, right? Um, but that's not it. There's actually a lot of stuff that we can look at in these circular features, Um and charcoals was another one, which I think is a really interesting way to date stuff, right? Yeah, so vitreous charcoals. And actually, so they were, they were doing carbon-14 in these. 
And when they <laughs> took their samples and did their analyses, came back, plugged it into their formulas, uh, they actually got dates in the future. <laughs> so like I said, carbon dating, not good for geology. <laughs> and the, the interesting thing about this is it actually provides a constraint because not, not for the future constraint, but actual real historical constraints. <laughs> exactly. So somehow we had to get more carbon-14 than there should have been to start with. And right. we know that during a geologic period called the Younger Dryas, there was a great enrichment of carbon-14. And we know that this enrichment in the Younger Dryas was about 13,000 years ago. So we know it's older than that. Okay, great. Um, let's get off of that weird biological stuff because that stuff never helps us. And be <laughs> because we have sand dunes there, let's go straight to the rocks. And you can look at the sand rims in the sand pieces of sand. And so what do we mean by this? Well, if sand sits around, it gets this nice little rim on it, and then it can grow some more sand to grow together into a rock. So you can actually look at the stuff that collects on sand and use it to get some dates. And we did this, and we got about 80 to 100,000 years before present. Right, and there's all kinds of interesting microscopic luminosity techniques, all kinds of things for doing oh, yes. this. Uh, yes. So what we get when we swish all these dates together, and if you will, draw a timeline and sort of use a highlighter to highlight the feasible period for each of these. Mm -hmm. uh, the answer isn't incredibly satisfying, <laughs> uh, which is tens of thousands of years ago is when these formed. Yes. So if you want to round, say 30, uh, and uh, it could be more than that based on what particular dates you believe. So... Mm -hmm. Like for the pollen, some of these had to be there 75,000 years ago at least. Tens of thousands is about the best we can say. But we can also say that after the formation, there was probably some clock tinkering going on through various geologic processes because nothing survives tens of thousands of years without some modification by fluids, weathering, other events. It's going to have a complicated story. <laughs> Which is funny to think about because we're talking about these geomorphological features. So geomorphology falls into this scope of geology that we call quaternary geology. So fairly recent, you know, million of years in the past. And it's so young. And so it's funny to think of all the assumptions we make when we're talking about rocks that are 300 million years old, right? right. <laughs> because we already have like 20 assumptions on these geomorphologic features that could be as young as 30,000 years. So, Well, you, you think about the age of these rocks, and it is small compared to the error bars on ages of some of these older formations. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> the whole age. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, one standard deviation of PMAG data, yep. <laughs> and it's all you know, 100,000 years, even 10,000 years is many, many, many lifetimes. So... Again, we go back to geology is hard to grok. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, so I sort of intimated that I thought tectonic forces would have created these. It seems like you can kind of break their different orientations into tectonic provinces. Um, but one idea of how these guys got there 
is that, you know, there's these geomorphological forces that are shaping them. And I read some stuff about how they think that these were actually formed underwater when the sea level was higher than it is today. And so sea currents going back and forth and the currents that changed as you went sort of up the coast is what created these weird holes, which I've definitely seen weird holes in the ocean before. Um, they're, some of them are unexplainable. Some of them definitely are explainable. So water seems to be involved in terms of currents. That seems like a good idea. Right, and there's ideas about groundwater upwellings uh, mm-hmm. once they were on land. And I want to go back to one more piece of evidence, the piece of evidence that put me on the track that several other people had, mm-hmm. which is those sand dunes that we talked about. Okay, yeah. So if you look at maps of the sand dune orientation, you find that they're pretty well correlated to the orientation of the long axis of these features. So in Florida, where you have a no to roughly north orientation, the dunes are westerly, east-westerly oriented. And as you go further north, the dune axis shifts so that the dunes are always perpendicular to the long axis of the bays. Even that abrupt shift way on the north. Okay. Okay. This is starting to come together. The first thing I thought is, okay, well, the dunes obviously have to be related to the bays. Right. Whether they played a role in forming the shape of them or whether the bays changed how the dunes move, but these two have to be interrelated somehow. So the sand dunes are came from, they're the excavated stuff from the bays, from when the aliens were digging out the bays, right? Exactly. Okay, that's, great. Go ahead. That's exactly where I was going. No. So, <laughs> um, the, the main thing that affects dunes is what? Wind. <laughs> yeah. And we know that global circulation patterns vary in a systematic way with latitude. We can predict it. Mm-hmm. This is super so, cool. I, I blame your meteorology leanings lately towards coming to this conclusion so quickly. Yes, I, I think it's probably a good... Yeah. So uh, I thought, well, I wonder if winds had something to do with this. And mm-hmm. that's one of the existing theories, right? Right, exactly. Um, so the time periods that we're talking about these things being formed, you know, we had a lot of glacial activity going on and glacial environments are really dusty you mobilize a lot of this quartz and pretty fine quartz sand all over the place and they're also really windy Uh, we've done a lot of different shows talking about different you know or graphic things that can affect wind right so different changes of elevation and glaciers provide a big temperature difference so that also creates some very um, predictable wind directions. But dudes aren't excavating holes. So we still have the problem of how did the holes get there to start with? Right. <laughs> Look, I can. I talked about the dunes, man. Come on, that's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the key piece of information came from drilling in one of these features in multiple places 
and they found coral bits, fossilized coral bits around the edge, but none in the center. Mm, there you go. Just big holes under the water. So at some point, these were coral, and then through a process of, you know, a karst formation process, mm-hmm. which we've talked about before, that material was dissolved out below the surface, and the land slumped, and that created features that were shaped like whatever the coral was. There you go. Yep. But then the dunes go to work. And so then, once you've got these holes, and you've got this big piles of sand sitting around, you're going to get migration, right? Because that's what you get when you've got these prevailing winds and you get migration of these dunes into these holes. I keep wanting to call them bays. They're not bays, but into these weird holes that are left over by these karst processes. Exactly. I keep calling them bays as well. It's Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. really it really messes with my geomorphology thinking this. <laughs> yeah, and... So you get these dunes that are migrating into here, and they do some filling in, but the dunes are migrating in a given direction because of the prevailing wind pattern, so they fill them in unevenly, and you end up with elliptical features that change orientation following wind and are perpendicular to the dune axes. Which we've talked about in past shows. We've talked about migration of dunes on Titan, Um, And so on that moon, these dunes aren't sand dunes. Well, they're pieces of hydrocarbon dunes, but it's the same relationship between uh, dune orientation and, in this case, their meteorite impacts, but holes, right? And we see this on uh, Mars as well. Right. And so this is a case of you have multiple processes at work to confuse us. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, And what's really interesting is if you look at predictions, so some of the paleoclimatic predictions of what winds would have been during this glacial period, things match up pretty well. That was a lot of very different aspects of geology, sedimentary geology, both silicoclastics and carbonates and paleoclimatology and geomorphology that came together to answer that. I I think this is a really nice, um, very recent example of how interconnected all these things need to be to figure out these problems, you know? Here's these holes. How did they get here? Um, Because as we alluded to, the first thing that was sort of talked about is that these were from uh, an impact because that's what they look like. Yeah, and I will say that Though the theory we just talked about is the currently accepted thinking, it is not universally (laughs) accepted nor proven. Yes, that is true. That is true. Uh, There are still debates about Mm -hmm. what caused these. There's even a paper recently that is in defense of the so-called cosmic splatter theory. (laughs) And and that's just because of the name. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And the idea here is you get a comet or something that comes in and either impacts or explodes above the ice sheet, sends little shards everywhere, and makes all of these excavated holes, which I have a little bit of a problem believing because impactors come in at non-vertical angles and we don't see greatly elongated impact features. 
Right, exactly. Hardly anywhere, actually, do we see these. Um, And there's a lot of other things that go along with proving something is an impact. Um, And that is stuff that happens to the rocks. So, like, you could form shatter cones, which are formed from the pressure, um, creating these cone and cone structures in rocks. Um, We don't see those. We don't see these things that we call PDFs or planar deformation features, which are sort of scratches that you can see under a microscope in rocks that have been impacted by something. We don't see brecciation, so broken up rocks. So all these things that are sort of hallmarks of impact craters, you don't see associated with these Carolina bays. Exactly. And the dating on a lot of things doesn't really line up. Yeah. And we're not going to have missed an event like that geologically. I'd like to say that's true. I don't know if I'm willing to agree with that statement, though. <laughs> I, I think if this were a much older period, we would have yeah. no problem missing it. In the yeah, quaternary true. realm, I have a hard okay. time seeing how we could have missed this. Okay, I will agree with that, yes. So <laughs> in the end, we don't really know exactly what's going on here, which I love because <laughs> that if, if I were driving across this area... Or if I were uh, somebody decades or hundreds of years ago, and I saw all these weird oval things from the top of some ridge, I'd say, how did those get there? And we're still not sure. (laughs) (laughs) I find this reassuring uh, on a a different level of I'm... I'm reassured that we don't have all the answers. That makes me happy because that means that there's no like authoritarian coming out and saying this is the answer and we all blindly believe it. Like I I just read 1984 again for like the 30th time. So that's going through my head (laughs) right now. (laughs) So that's how I feel about this. I'm, I'm glad we don't know, but they're really strange and I can't get over how much they look like little bitty impact craters. Yeah, and if you were interested in a a good image processing problem, I think this would be a great one to learn on. Oh yeah, <laughs> trying to do absolutely. feature detection and machine learning and all that. Take some take some satellite photos of this, and try to mechanistically pick out orientations instead of doing what has been done in the past, which is a grad student a topo map and some tools <laughs> by tools you mean protractors and stuff like that yeah or, or ArcGIS now oh okay yeah <laughs> but, yeah that's that's uh, awesome feature detection would be an interesting one and these are important ecologically they do host some endangered species and a lot of them have been filled in they're not incredibly deep anyway mm-hmm. uh, and become pretty nice farmland yeah and biologically speaking that that could probably be a whole nother show because um like what happens in africa you have all those cichlids so these the pretty fish you buy at PetSmart or whatever um they actually have a really interesting evolutionary history um because what happens is the lakes that they're in sort of well they dry up to the extent that now it's left behind all these little holes. And within these little ponds, you get different sort of evolution within these cichlids. And it's kind of cool because each little pond has a very unique uh, biodiversity. And so these Carolina bays are kind of the same thing. And that's a very interesting biology study, regardless of the origin of these weird holes. 
Exactly. So. So, Mike, I hope that this was a <laughs> worth the wait answer on <laughs> how these might have formed. And like Shannon said, this is a great example of interdisciplinary work to solve an interesting and perplexingly hard problem. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. So no more suggestions, Mike. That was your one and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that means it's time to move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! <laughs> man, you didn't do any work at all for this, John. This is another listener-suggested paper. Come on, man. <laughs> I know. So this is from listener Jonathan. And he says this paper just came up on the archive and thought that it would make a good fun paper Friday. And the second author is known for his fun and speculative work, especially <laughs> when it comes to life in the universe. And he just goes on to suck up to you saying that, you know, as a geophysicist, you're going to really like this. <laughs> right. Uh, it says that this has enough, just enough biology to make the biologist angry enough geology to make the geologist angry uh, and doesn't have too much astronomy to make it uh, comprehensible. <laughs> I love it. This is a really cool read, um, mostly because it was only five pages. But <laughs> So the paper itself is titled Reduce Diversity of Life Around Proxima Centauri and Trappist-1 by Lingham and Loeb. And okay. You know, Trappist-1 got a lot of news not too long ago. Right, exactly, because this is the one that's near or around exoplanets around Proxima Centauri, so our closest star, and we got very excited because they were all in this so-called habitable zone, and maybe there's a lot of life going on there. And this paper explores how you would determine that uh, based on star types, and based on some very simplistic assumptions about how life came about on Earth. Right. And I did really appreciate, so Jonathan gave us a great summary. Yes, yes, he did. Of this paper, to go along with the paper, and a background on star classification, because this paper depends on you knowing that, and not being <laughs> astronomers, we don't. Uh, so in my mind, I'm going to say, I've had this... I've had this going around in my head for a long time, and it's the phrase, oh, be a fine girl, kiss me. Obviously, this is not from a song, <laughs> but <laughs> I, knew, I knew it was a, a mnemonic for something. <laughs> I couldn't remember, and it was great because I was like, oh, it's a mnemonic for star types. <laughs> yeah, it is. So you're talking about stars going from the most massive that would burn very hot and run out of fuel very quick, the O-class, all the way down to M-class, which are small, cold, long-lived stars. And they're not in order because, well, they were discovered not in order and everything became a mess and we just <laughs> carried it forward. <laughs> so again, you know, I find that comforting that we don't have all the answers. <laughs> and for reference, our sun is sort of in that lower two-thirds of the scale there. It is a G-dwarf. Right, so... Oh, be a fine girl, kiss me. So, yeah, the lower yeah. end, um, which is actually pretty interesting based on the outcomes of this paper. So keep that in mind, that we're G-star. Um, 
And so they, they go on to say, you know, obviously we're very excited about these exoplanets that we keep finding uh, by the Kepler s- satellite. And that makes us think, are, is there other people out there that live in this habitable zone, habitable zone, right? And that's the region around a host star that's theoretically capable of supporting liquid water. Because that's the thing that we've said you have to have for life. You have to have water. So that's where we're looking, right? And we have a lot of these things. Um, an estimated 10 to the 10th exoplanets in the habitable, habitable zone, just in the Milky Way alone. And that's a big number. Yes. <laughs> so the uh, the authors want to estimate, okay, how many of these might actually have life, evolved life, highly evolved life, intelligent life? Mm-hmm. And they... Uh, I, I love in Jonathan's description, he said, they tear through astronomy, biology, and geology with brutally simplifying assumptions that leave physicists in awe and non-physicists shaking their heads that anybody would take this crap seriously. <laughs> it was beautifully written, though. <laughs> it, it, it was. I absolutely agree with that assessment because, yeah, I could see where you're like, oh, how elegant. <laughs> well, I, so you say that biodiversity is going to be described by an exponential relation that depends on only time and the surface area of the planet. <laughs> and Assumptions. If you, uh, <laughs> if you blindly accept that yes. and uh, keep moving on, then <laughs> they can calculate using the age of the Earth the total number of species that should be present on the Earth today, ignoring any of those pesky recurring extinctions that happen in geology. Oh, you know, it all evens out in the end, right? It's no big deal. Mm. (laughs) For every extinction you have. (laughs) See, exactly. Every extinction you have an explosion, so it's fine. That's a great assumption. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And uh, then they just go on to make lots of assumptions about (laughs) we're going to make this relation, and then... uh, they say, well, let's look at the mass of the star that the planet is around and how much time life would need to get to different stages based on that because you have to be in a Goldilocks zone like basically everything in science mm-hmm. yeah. where your star is burning for a long time. So you need to be warming the planet. You need to be a long-lived star to let evolution do its thing so a big star that short-lived is not going to be a good place to find life right because you're going to burn you're going to burn through your hydrogen really fast so you want to be in this good hydrogen long time burning zone right but if you're a low mass star to have any planets they have to be very close to you because your gravitational pull is weak which means that you're (laughs) blasting their atmosphere away with solar wind exactly so you're not going to find any life on little mercuries, right? And so these M classes at the very bottom, that's tiny little guys, are probably not the best, which is actually where a bunch of these exoplanets lies with these M dwarf stars. Right. And so the best place, they, they make a plot using these assumptions, and they say we really should be looking at things that are about half the mass of the sun. Okay. That's, that's where we're most likely. Though, if they're solar or similar to solar, that's not a bad place to look either. Uh, but if they are very light, so let's see, they've got a, 
they've got a number in here. If you're looking at something that's less than about a quarter of the mass of the sun or more than about time and three quarters, you're probably wasting your time statistically. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, because you've got to have those, the thing that is time for species biodiversity to thrive, essentially. Right. Well, and they also assume things like, you know, biodiversity kicks up with a pretty simple relation to time. And uh, Yes. <laughs> I'm sure that's all that is, right? <laughs> How can it be more complicated than that? <laughs> well, and there's a nice dig at, you know, we're, we're a special snowflake being Earth. Yes. <laughs> and he says, actually, it's really not surprising in this model that there's life on Earth, that there's intelligent life on Earth. Uh, which was a word that I learned in here. I don't know if you knew what that <laughs> meant. No genesis? No. No, you didn't know what that meant? Yeah, that is, uh, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. So someone can send in an audio clip of me mispronouncing that, please. Um, and that means the um, the evolution of intelligent life. All right. So yeah. mm-hmm. new, new word of the week there. I like yeah. it. Uh, <laughs> so, so, so they say that stars in that mass interval that you just described are more capable of facilitating noogenesis. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, it's interesting because there are so many potential targets that we could look at mm-hmm. and so little telescope time. Yes. This helps narrow down where to look if your goal is to find habitable and planets that likely could support active evolutionary processes. Right. Exactly. Because um, you can say, yeah, this is silly. I can't believe he boiled down my 35 years in school to this one simple equation, right? But it's a really good first pass at that because, yes, that's really expensive and we should be spending that precious time on things that might advance us as opposed to looking at, you know, these really low-mass stars that maybe aren't going to help us out much or these, you know, giants that definitely would have long since burned away uh, all the things that make life happy and able to thrive. Right, and Jonathan pointed out that his prime objection to some of the assumptions in here is assumptions about planetary orbits that for a given star, planets typically orbit X far out. Uh, Mm -hmm. And he said that we don't really know, and in fact, we've yet to discover things that look anything like the system we inhabit. Right. Uh, And if there were alien astronomers that had our technology currently, uh, it would basically be impossible to see the Earth because of Mm-mm. combinations of distance, radius, mass, etc. It would be very difficult to even know that we're here. Right. Yes, which I thought was very interesting as well. So this was a... <laughs> this is definitely a spherical cow approach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But when you're dealing uh, with things of this magnitude, that's about all you can do. And yeah. it's, a, it's an elegant way to do it. And I love the way that in their results section, they don't have paragraphs and paragraphs of prose that you have to dig through and highlight and underline and refer back to this figure. They're bullet points. These beautiful bullet points. I made a note of that too. <laughs> it made it so pleasurable to read. 
It really did. I don't know if you can get away with bullet points, but I'm going to consider it. I would definitely try it. I love it. I mean, the snippets that you take away, because, I mean, how many papers have you read when you sit down and think about it all the way from start to finish? No one ever does that. And where are your eyes going to be drawn? These bullet points. Well, and in a lot of papers now, you have to have keywords or key phrases or summary points. So your paper will be accompanied by three bullet points at the top that are your flashiest, jazziest, most overhyped <laughs> explanation of what you did. Right, exactly. <laughs> Here we have half a dozen bullet points in the body of the paper with a short paragraph describing each, saying these are the things that if you were taking notes on this paper, you should have written down. Right, exactly. And you could even start here and then go back to the paper and pull out the nuggets that you need to. Um, I thought that was a, a beautiful um, layout. And a, I don't know why how you would choose to do that, but I thought it was really good. Um, I don't want to overlook, too, just the lessons because I highlighted this because I'm obsessed with Titan. Um, <laughs> because they point out that some of these results, although they are very simplistic with these just basically two assumptions about life, um, could be applicable to habitable exomoons as well. And I think that's pretty important because, you know, NASA is working on a lot of different exomoon exploration for life projects. Um, and so we shouldn't rule that out either. Yeah. So this is a great read. It is a very well-written paper. It clearly lays out its assumptions. It clearly lays out its findings. Mm -hmm. It doesn't overuse fancy graphics. There's just a couple of simple line plots that are easy to read. Uh, Thanks, Jonathan. This was a this was a pleasure to read. It, it really was. Um, I'm glad you brought up jargon. I have one more thing to say. I can't let it go. Um, <laughs> in the attempt to actually cut down on jargon in this paper, they define the word biodiversity as a portmanteau of the words biological diversity. <laughs> this is like a no jargon paper. They even had to point that out, which I thought was kind of hysterical. <laughs> well, and you know, it's... It's interesting. I had not heard the word portmanteau. Oh, really? <laughs> until a few weeks ago, and I was doing some research about LIDAR and ah. found out that, you know, everybody says that LIDAR stands for something. It's not, it is not an acronym. Yeah. And it, what it stands for depends on who you talk to. No, it was a portmanteau of light and radar, and then it was backronymed by various people. Yep, exactly. Yep. So, yeah, that, I've heard that word a couple times, so that's... Uh, that's really funny. <laughs> I guess yeah. it's not a word you would that would normally come up in a scientific context, and since I love words, I thought that was great that it actually did. <laughs> yeah. So, this is a, it's a free PDF. You can go get it on the archive. Link will be in the show notes. If you have a paper that you would like us to read or if you have an estimate on where you can find intelligent life on any planet, including this one, we would <laughs> love to hear your responses. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Uh, please send us your audio comments of the correct pronunciation of nodegenesis to show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, as always, we're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I am at Shannon Doolin. And we're on the Slack chat room, swung.rocks, and on the Don't Panic channel. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science.
Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. Bum, 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 bum.